ask you a question here. At what stage of life do you think most people thrive? Well, if you're guessing 20s or 30s, I think you're going to want to listen to this. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, the program that reminds us all of the great things that are possible as we age. And in the next hour, you'll hear from a nationally recognized thought leader, a gold medal winning athlete, and a prize winning poet. They're going to offer insights, perspectives, and thoughts about how aging has changed them. That is an eclectic rundown, Mr. Schaefer. And what is it about poets? Uh, They are no less than sculptors of the English language who use words and phrases to help us recognize things we might not have noticed before. That's kind of poetic itself, isn't it, Bill? Uh, Growing Boulder recently had a poetry slam, folks, a contest of sorts, and we will hear from the winner whose poem is an honest look at loss and resilience. The athlete we'll hear from is three-time Olympic gold medalist Rowdy Gaines, uh, one of our good pals. He's going to explain why, whether it's swimming or life itself, attitude makes all the difference. But first... Don't let anyone make you feel less important as you age. We're going to meet a brilliant social scientist who says your most significant purpose may be about to reveal itself to you. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, this is Growing Bolder. Well, we hear it again time and time again on this program from celebrities, from athletes, even everyday people. And it's always a surprise to hear someone say that their older years are some of their best. How is that possible? Will that be true for you? I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. It's not automatic and it's not always easy, but the second half of our lives can be quite fulfilling. Turns out there are some things we can do right now to help make that happen. Arthur Brooks just wrote a book about it. Brooks happens to be one of the most interesting guys on the planet. Social scientist, a columnist, a guy who studied poverty and ways to move people out of it. He studied happiness. He's he's got a great documentary out. He's got a podcast and a dozen books in all. This one is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep purpose in the second half of life. Let's say hi to Arthur Brooks. How are you, Arthur? I'm well. How are you, Bill? Great to be with you. You know, I'm a big fan and really excited to have you here. There's so much that you do that, you know, from such an interesting and intellectual perspective, you take these big, big, big concepts and you make them simple in a very smart way. Uh, And first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you on that because I really, really like your work. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it a lot. You know, I'm a social scientist. And when I was getting my PhD, I thought to myself, you know, I could study widget manufacturing, or maybe I could study the human heart, which is more interesting. You know, the truth is the human heart is a little harder to study because we're complex individuals. You know, we're, 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 we're all kind of different in our own way, but we're all the same in the things that we want. And so now I'm teaching happiness classes at Harvard University, and they're oversubscribed because this is the thing that people want. And, and this is the book for the happiness book for the rest of us. This is the happiness book on the the 401k of happiness. That's a seven year study about how we can all get happier as we get older. And I'm completely convinced because I'm living it myself that this really works. You don't have to leave your happiness up to chance. You know, this is great. I want to ask a quick question about the title. It says success, happiness, and deep purpose. You could have just said purpose. Why, Why deep? 
because we find that when people do the right thing, when they actually make the right investments, that the purpose in life is so much deeper as you get older. The understanding that you can get can be so much more profound. This is one of the reasons that you find that about half of individuals, they tend to get happier and happier after about age 60 all the way to death, and the other half start to go back down again. The difference is purpose. The people who are on that upper branch are the ones who say, oh, I really am starting to understand. And the good news is you don't have to leave that up to chance at all. If you do what I have in this book, which are the seven habits of the happiest people who are older. And if you do these things, we can all have that deep purpose ahead of us. Does that mean you want to hit some of those habits now? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's like and the, the number one habit that I found is and it really this one hit me like a two by four across the chops is. I noticed that I started seeing in the in the literature, but then when I started to interview subjects for this book, that there's really two curves of success. And the key to getting happier as you get older is recognizing that your better success curve is the later one. Most people don't even know it exists. Most people, you know, they think, look, I go up and then I lose my skills and that's kind of it. And all the good stuff is in the past. Well, it turns out there's this second success curve, not of raw smarts and hard work, but of wisdom and teaching that people start to get in their 50s and 60s, that's highest in your 70s and even your 80s. And I talk in the book in a detailed way about how to exploit that, how to get on it, how to cultivate it. And that's the big one, is jumping from one success curve to the other. That's the most important skill that people acquire if they're going to be happy as they get older. Now, wait a minute. Isn't success all about getting a promotion, making more money? What What is success at 70? Yeah, success at 70 is enjoying your life more than you ever did, is serving other people and having more love in your life. And one of the things that people need to do is to, is to migrate their passions from money, power, pleasure, fame to faith, family, friendship, and work that truly does serve others because these are the source of our, our deep and enduring satisfaction. Now, easier said than done. You know, it takes a whole bunch of ideas and a, a lot of introspection, but, but that's why I wrote the book. I didn't just like write a list and put it on the internet. I wrote the whole book because frankly, I wanted this strategic plan for the rest of my life. I didn't even intend to publish it. It was a seven year study as a social scientist into the nature of my own happiness. And it was in notebooks on my desk. And my wife said, you got to write that up. And I said, ah, nobody wants to hear that. And it debuted at number one on the New York times bestseller list. So I guess I guess that's proof that my wife is always right. Well, that's that's probably your second rule for success is the wife is always right. But uh, what did you see in aging that you thought, man, this might hit a nerve with people? Well, part of it is that we are aging and everybody, maybe we don't want to age, but we don't like the alternative. That's for sure. You know, not aging is worse than aging. That's for sure. And, you know, we have an aging nation of people that are kind of trying to leave their happiness up to chance. It's it's craziness. I just, you know, hope for the best and live right and everything else. No, you can do things. You can, you can start your happiness 401k no matter what age, 25, 45, 65, and remarkably change the odds of getting happier as you grow older. I literally quit a CEO job on the basis of this research and, and came to do teaching so that I could be on my own second curve. It's a really important thing that, to, to, to recognize that there's so much that's in all of our hands that we can do to actually get happier, to bring more love in our lives to lift other people up, but, but it doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't just, you know, mysteriously materialize in our lives. We actually have to know the skills. It's not enough to wish for it. You got to work for it, but the work is joyful. Yeah. And you've got to believe that it can happen. And I think there are several schools of thought too. A lot of people sit around and say, well, society's not set up 
for that. So I'm going to wait for somebody else to change it for me. And there's another group that says, no, I'm going to make my own second half of life. Yeah. So how, what do we do? How do we how do we ignore these images of aging as just terrible yeah. and and take it head on? Well, one of the things that we need to recognize, quite frankly, is that one of the ways that we can save this country is having more old people in positions of leadership. Now, one of, you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff, you know, studying Silicon Valley tech industries. And one of the biggest, they, they went from, you know, the most respected part of the entrepreneurial economy to one of the least respected in 15 years. How do you blow that? How do you blow that lead? You know, when I was a kid, I was a Seattle Mariners fan growing up in Seattle. They could blow a lead like that. But, you know, not very many teams are that good, I have to say, at, at screwing up. What happened? And the answer is there's too many young people. I mean, I love young people because they're on their first success curve, their ambition curve. But there's not enough people on the second success curve, which is the wisdom curve. You know, one of the things I talk about in this book is that, look, we're getting healthier. We're living longer. If you're 20 years old and you're in good health, you can expect to live to 90 no joke. That means at 70, you should be in your prime on your second curve, your wisdom curve. Every company in America needs more old people in the C-suite, more old people on marketing teams, more old people on product teams, people who've actually gotten their degree in the school of hard knocks that can help keep organizations from making dumb mistakes. I love the energy of young people, but it's only deployed properly when it's mixed with the wisdom of old people. So this is one of the key things. It's not just finding good jobs for old people. This is not an act of charity. This is an act of charity for America that we need to deploy the wisdom that's actually floating around around us. And those of us who are, you know, I'm 57 and I'm planning to live for a bunch more years. I want to deploy my talents and my skills that, I, that I've actually cultivated over the course of this study for good purpose. And I want other people to enjoy this book and understand that their best years and their happiest years are ahead. All right, look, you got us fired up now. Nobody listening is disagreeing. So what, what do we do? What actionable items? What can I do right now in my mid-60s to, to take steps in the right direction? Well, there's a lot of things. There's these seven practices. And I go through them one by one um, and about how to cultivate your new skills, to be sure. But there are also things to be thinking about. So, for example, we need, as we get older, to be spending a lot more time on our on our close relationships than we have in the past. These things are not going to fix themselves and these things are not going to generate themselves. So I have a whole section on how, you know, young people, they have a lot of deal friends, but as you get older, you need real friends, not deal friends. One of the biggest problems that older people have is they're, even though they have a lot of people around them, they're quite lonely because they've lost their ability to make real friendships. So real friends, not deal friends. There's a spiritual walk that older people need to cultivate, whether they're traditionally religious or not. You know, the contemplation of more transcendental things plays into, taps into the second curve. It literally works with the structure of the brain optimally. And I talk about actually how to do that with a meditation or prayer practice or simply reading the philosophical works of the great stoic philosophers. There's many ways to do that. It goes on and on. We need to confront our fears. Older people who are happier and more effective and more successful, they're not afraid of failure anymore. They're not afraid of social comparison anymore. And, but that doesn't happen by itself. I have a whole set of techniques and meditations that the, the oldest, happiest people that they engage in so that fear can be in their past one step after another. This is a joyful job, but it's a real thing that each one of us can do. And I think one of the things I love about your work the most, whether you're talking about happiness, whether you're talking about poverty, whether you're talking about aging, you keep coming back to these same terms. You keep, you know, whether you're 90, whether you have cancer 
or even people who suffer dementia. We need to find ways to keep our dignity, not just keep our dignity, but offer dignity to others to feel useful and to, to have hope in our lives. Yeah, for sure. And it's one thing, one of the main reasons that people get very depressed when they get older is that because they feel irrelevant. But it, it's not just enough to convince yourself that you're not irrelevant, to convince yourself that you're useful. You got to be useful. You have to be relevant. And this doesn't have to be fiction. If you get on to your second curve of strength, if you leave your fear behind, if you cultivate the sense of the transcendent, if you make real relationships, if you, if you actually get in touch with your weaknesses, not just your strengths, all of these techniques that the happiest people do, you will find yourself getting more useful. It will be authentic. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. They're going to say, yeah, I need grandpa. I need him here because I can't do my work without him. And, and look, this is, I'm not going to lie to you here. I mean, this country needs that. We have an aging population full of people with tremendous potential. If we can instantiate that potential in each one of us, make, start making the investments when we're younger to get that, the greatest years of America can be ahead. But the greatest years of America are not going to be in the hands of people who don't have this wisdom and don't have this experience. It's going to be, Bill, it's going to be you and me and a lot of other people in our age group. They're going to, they're going to lead America into its greatest period. This is this is great stuff. This is what we need to hear and not just people that are 65 and over. But as you said, people who are 20, 30, 40, moving forward into life. And really, we are, you know, you don't want to keep age groups in silos either. This intergenerational stuff is magic. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it's the most amazing. One of the biggest mistakes that we've made in America is by putting everybody together by age. You know, first graders, the second graders, the college students, the graduate students, you know, they have cohorts inside and inside companies that are all the same age. That's nuts. We lose the ability to learn from each other and get energy from each other. One of the reasons that we're having so much trouble in business today, especially in the tech industries, is because older people, I mean, younger people don't even know older people. They don't even see older people. There's nobody older around to say, you're about to step on a landmine, figuratively. You're about to, you know, make a, make a big mess here. I know this because I've done it 40 times. You know, it's crazy that, it, and by the way, life is just not as good when we don't have people of different age groups. You know, I was giving a talk at a, at a company out in California, and they were asking me my views on, on the diversity problem because there just aren't enough people of color and women who are, you know, doing engineering, for example. I, I'm, it's a big problem for sure. But then I said, speaking of diversity, how many old people work here? And the guy's like, you mean over 30? Punk. Are you kidding me? You know, and that's the diversity that we really, really need in this country. Uh, this is the last question here. I, I can't. You're getting more and more fired up as we go as we go in this interview, and this is fantastic. I want to ask you: Are you surprised? I mean, did you think that this book, this topic, was one that you were going to be so passionate about as, as you dove into it? Well, part of it is when I was doing it, I was kind of thinking I need to do a little research for myself so that maybe I got a chance of getting a little happier because I wasn't very happy ten years ago. Quite frankly, I was just busting my pick all day long. I wasn't seeing my family very much. And, but not only did it actually give me the, the ideas to improve my life, I'm much happier than I was 10 years ago, and I want to pass it on. I want to share these secrets. I feel like I, I dug up a pot of gold in my backyard. It's just the most amazing thing. And, and, and not only that, just so other people can get happier, I want to help my country. I want America to continue to be a, a leader in the world, and we're not going to do it with anything less than, than all of our batteries wired together as people. So I'm pretty fired up because... I found, I think, the coolest thing in my whole career. 
Well, you've really given us a gift and you've done it again with this book. Great topic, great approach. And it's a topic that relates to every one of us. The book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Thanks to Arthur Brooks for a great and inspiring conversation. Up next, a visit between a couple of world record-holding swimmers. It's relay teammates Mark Middleton and Olympic champ Rowdy Gaines. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill, and that's Mark over there. And we're going to talk for a minute on why it seems a lot of us can be really good at something, but only a few of us really excel. And I want to ask you, Mark, about a very good friend of yours, a believer in Growing Bolder, and a guy who was a recent guest on your podcast, Fountain of Youth. And I'm talking about Rowdy Gaines. Bill, you are so right. Everybody loves Rowdy. He is a three-time Olympic gold medal-winning swimmer. Something he probably never would have accomplished on talent alone. He's also a commentator, the voice of Olympic swimming on NBC. Something else he probably never would have accomplished on talent alone. One of Rowdy's most important skills is passion. Here's an excerpt now from our Fountain of Youth podcast where Rowdy talks about how loving what you do can make all the difference, even if, like he did during the pandemic, you're called upon to announce a race with nobody in the stands. Yeah, I mean, this was a unique Olympic Games, uh, Mark. It was definitely the, the strangest one of the 10 I've been to, eight that I've called uh, from a television perspective, and then I just uh, went to 1988 to, to watch, and then I was obviously a part of 1984. This was, this was the most unusual one for sure, but it was also one that brought me the most joy, to be honest with you. There were better Olympic games, like, for example, the perfect storm of 2008 with Michael Phelps and his eight gold medals, uh, the love of swimming that Sydney offered in 2000, Rio and maybe the greatest combined Olympic team in history. The Americans won 16 golds out of 32 events. They won half the golds. But this one, you know, the Japanese people were so wonderful. They're so sweet, so humble. Uh, so hardworking, so gracious in so many ways. And they tried so hard, even without that audience. So I felt a real passion, and I always have, obviously, of the sport. But I always felt like, in Tokyo anyway, I felt like a responsibility to relay that message of hope and, um, and energy to the crowd back at home, you know, to the, to the Americans that were watching our broadcast. And... I feel like we, you know, we accomplished that. And I, I say we because it wasn't just about me. I mean, obviously, I have a, an incredible partner in Dan Hicks. And the team that was with us, we had probably 150 people that were involved in the swimming broadcast alone in Tokyo. So it, it, it really takes uh, 
it takes a village, and this village was really at their best in in um, in Tokyo. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Dan because I'm watching the race and I'm listening for you. But every time I stop and pay attention to Dan Hicks, he really is very, very good. I mean, he's in and out at just the right time with with just the right stuff. We've been doing this long enough, Mark, to where we kind of know the nuances of of what we need to be able to accomplish to make it entertaining, first of all, and also um, um, educational to the public. Because most people that watch the Olympics, at least on the swimming side, that's the only one, the only sport that I know, they don't know anything about swimming. <laughs> we have we have the diehards that know everything about swimming, but you know, of the 20 million people that watch that night, 19 million 900 thousand are you know novices at the sport they don't know what backstroke flags are they don't know what those fins are on the end of the of a starting platform or what we call block so it's a lot of education and dan and i have worked so well together and he's been such a huge mentor of mine you know i i call him so many things uh, he's one of my best friends but most of all he's really helped me on the broadcasting side because i'm not a broadcaster i'm not i mean i know swimming i'm just some dope that calls swimming races but um but he's helped me on that side a lot. He, he's a real pro. You are too, Roddy. You, you know, you, you really can't sell yourself short. But but I'll I'll accept that <laughs> and, and, and we'll move on. It is interesting because all the money that NBC spends for technological innovation, mm-hmm. there really was one new piece of technology that has never existed before that really made a lot of difference, and that was the Rowdy Cam. <laughs> uh, and I'm and I'm guessing that they really hadn't anticipated nor planned for that because the framing wasn't perfect. Let's be honest. But the energy that it captured was amazing. And, and folks, the Rowdy Cam, if you don't know what it was, it was, it was almost like a cam coming off of a laptop or something. It was watching Rowdy as he calls a race, the excitement of it. Uh, what did you think, and what kind of response did you get from the Rowdy Cam? Well, the executive producer of the whole Olympic Games, uh, Molly Solomon, who was actually the president of the Golf uh, Channel, she was in charge of the whole Olympic broadcast. She came to me about a week before the Olympics and said, hey, listen, we're thinking about putting a little lipstick camera on top of your monitor that would point it to you. You don't have to worry about it. We're just probably going to do things internally. And, but we think it'd be fun to capture some of your energy. And I said, sure, no problem. And I totally forgot about it. You know, I, I had no idea because it's so small, you don't even realize it's up there. And World War Three could be going on around me, Mark, literally you could be jumping on top of me. You could have all kinds of kids. No, I'd have all the major distractions you could ever think of, and it wouldn't bother me whatsoever. So it was definitely not a distraction. But about four or five days into the meet, they showed my call of Caleb. I, and I look at that, and I go, oh, my gosh, who is that lunatic? I even <laughs> laugh at myself. I'm talking to my wife, Judy, last night, and we, <laughs> I said, you know, I, I had all these people. I had a pilot. I, I came home last night on a flight, and the pilot came up to me. and goes, I love the rowdy cam. Can I get my picture taken with you? <laughs> and um, especially the one on the medley relay where oh I'm kind of jumping up and down. I even look at that and laugh. You know, I laugh at that guy. Uh, but it, it really epitomized the passion I feel about swimming. I, I just, I love swimming. People ask me all the time, what was the number one reason why you won a gold medal? Was because I love the sport. It changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the path of what, what I did. And, and that kind of exemplified that with that little stupid camera. It did kind of open up a little bit of a can of worms because, you know, we're supposed to be very neutral. There's no we. 
which I've never done in eight Olympic Games. It's always the U.S. I can't say we, but I am an American and we are broadcasting to a U.S. audience. So there's a little bit more energy that obviously that that I uh, expend out there for in an American when they win. Um, but I tell you, if you showed that, that they had that camera on me during the world record of uh, Schoonmacher from South Africa breaking the world record in the women's 200 breaststroke, I was jumping up and down for her, too, because I, I, love, I love fast swimming. Uh, I like it a little bit more maybe when an American does it, but I love fast swimming. It just so happens that it captured that moment of the medley relay. And again, without getting into the weeds, that's a race that we had never lost. I can say we now because I'm not working for NBC, but that's a race that the U.S. had never lost in history, and I was a part of that in 1984. So that energy was even more amplified. And an interesting lesson in storytelling because here we are watching the greatest athletes in the world, which is really why you were there, why all the money was spent, why all the time is invested in watching that. And, and in truth, one of the, the greatest elements of all is a reversal of a broadcaster getting excited. I mean, it was entertaining. It was it, it was endearing. It was authentic. That's uh, You're authentic, Rowdy, and I think that's what, <laughs> what makes you who you are. Let's go back to you, um, and, and then we'll get on to, to some master sports and senior sports because uh, I want to know what's, what's going on with your shoulder and when you might be back in the pool in a Rowdy Gaines Masters Classic. But you were graduating from Auburn back in the day. You fastest freestyler in the world, held multiple world records, were all jazzed up and ready to kick some butt in 1980, and the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Games. And it's important for everybody to realize that back – in 1980, there really was no such thing as a professional swimmer. Uh, you graduated from college, and, and, and that was it. Adios. You had to go make a living. And, and, and that's what you faced. I mean, timing was not good for Rowdy Gaines. It was over. You graduated from college. The Olympics were boycotted by the U.S., and you decided that you would stick it out for four more years, another grind to, to take a shot at 84. And, and I know there's more than one question in here, but I'm wondering, Rowdy, if if you hadn't taken that shot and gone on to 84, how would your life have been different? Because that gold medal really seems like it became a ticket to this fraternity that you just described. It certainly had to have some impact on NBC wanting to give you a chance to become a broadcaster. I mean, if you had walked away after graduating from Auburn in, what, was it 79 or 80, you, you would have been remembered a little bit by swimmers, how would your life be different? It, it totally, totally changed things, Mark. I mean, it is so funny how life works. I was just talking about this to a friend a couple of days ago and the fact that I made the Olympic team. I missed the team, by the way, at our trials in the 200 freestyle, an event I had the world record in. I finished seventh. I didn't wow. even make the team in it. The next day or two days later, the 100 free happened at our Olympic trials. They only take the top two. I was second by eight one-hundredths of a second. So I almost didn't even make the team, much less of talking about walking away. If I had walked away, the trajectory, again, of my life would have been completely different. And, uh, and that's the way it is. That's the way our sport works, you know. I think that's the way life works, to tell you the truth. It's, it's decided by fractions of an inch or fractions of a second. And for me, it was certainly that case. Uh, you know, the boycott was something that, you know, without getting into the weeds, it was something that obviously I disagreed with. It affected many, many lives. Uh, there were 300, 
23 athletes that made the Olympic team in 80 that didn't make it in 76 and did not make it in 84. And so that was that lost generation. I was very fortunate because I had 1984. And the bottom line is and all is I wanted to be an Olympian. I know that's oversimplistic, but I really wanted to try to be an Olympian because once you're an Olympian, it's forever. There's no such thing as former Olympian or past Olympians. Um, it's said all the time, but really you're an Olympian forever and ever. So those, those uh, Tokyo little brothers and sisters will always be able to share that bond. We will always have that bond. And, uh, and I wanted that. I really wanted that. And I, I think it, it definitely would have changed things. My father was a motion picture director, so I really wanted – before swimming even came along, I really wanted to go in the motion picture business. So I could have seen myself taking that path and wouldn't have been a pad path. It would, I would have been okay. <laughs> it, would have, it would have been a different life, but I would have been okay. I would have, I would have turned out okay. But uh, swimming definitely helped. So let's talk about master sports and the many things that it does for people. Because, um, you know, you're a guy who kind of stopped for a little while, but you've, you keep going and you keep going and you keep setting records. And... In a very real way, master sports, which is one of the things I love about it, is is it helps us not only prepare for setbacks but recover from setbacks. And every master's athlete out there that's listening to this, you know, understands what we mean about injuries, about health challenges. And and you had a major one, I don't know, was it eighty one uh, Guillain Barre syndrome? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a it's a strange uh, neurological disorder. It's a basically without getting too scientific because I don't even know the scientific part but it's a there's a sheath around your nerves it's a myelon sheath and basically that gets shredded so literally one day I'm walking around I just come out a master's meet in Japan um, broke a couple world records in master's and uh, 24 hours later I I, I I was completely paralyzed so it, you know everything shut down I was in the hospital for about six months and had to relearn how to do everything all over again and it, it, it certainly offered perspective um, and made you appreciate what the human body is capable of doing or not capable of doing. And, uh, you know, I, from that point on, I never took my health for granted. And it was funny because, Mark, when you were talking at the very beginning of the podcast and talking about all the great and amazing things that activity can provide uh, for those uh, that uh, have started into that aging process, it's unbelievable, man. I'm telling you, I, I can't imagine living without swimming. Not so much for the physical part. I mean, the physical part, yes. But what it does for me mentally and emotionally and even spiritually, I know that sounds a little corny, but I, I really think that um, physical activity, uh, mental activity, but physical activity especially, for me anyway, uh, helps me in so many different ways. And, uh, and, and when I came down with Guillain-Barre, I was... 32 years old uh, so it was a long time ago um, I don't have any repercussions from it but it was something that was eye-opening as far as your health goes and part of that eye-opening experience was making sure that I stayed active the rest of my life I think the fact that you still continue to swim is is really kind of further testimony to the extent that you love swimming because you you know you you rattled off a bunch of names from Mark Spitz to Matt Biondi on and on and on they don't compete anymore. Uh, there are some former Olympians like yourself that still do compete. Uh, and I think, I don't know, I've not talked to Mark Spitz or Matt Biondi, but, but I, I would imagine that some of those athletes think, you know what, I've, 
I've got nothing to gain. You know, I've already done it. You know, the only thing I can do is frustrate myself, uh, tarnish my legacy, uh, because I'm not as fast as I was once then. That's never bothered you. No, Mark, it, I, I, I don't do it for the, the wins and losses. I do it because, first of all, as I said, it makes me feel better. That, I, I just, you were the same way, man. We, we, we're on the same path. You swim all the time, and it, I don't like pain. It's to say, I'll go back to when I was training <laughs> for the Olympics. I'm not, so, I'm not so much on the training part, but I love the feeling after. You know, that's what I craved was the feeling after when I was training for the Olympics. And that's the feeling I have now. I mean, I, I just love the feeling after I've done that activity. And it doesn't necessarily have to be swimming. For me, it's going out and playing pickleball with you at the senior games. You know, I just felt, I felt so good and felt so alive doing that. And I, I'll, I'll just say that for me, in, in master swimming and that senior age group, a lot of it is the camaraderie, too. The, the, the feeling you have about, you know, I talked about my Olympic brothers and sisters, but the master's brothers and sisters are just as close to me um, because we all have different reasons why we do these activities. And you mentioned them at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, what brings us together is the love of what we're doing. You know, that's the bottom line and all. And some take it a lot more seriously than I do. And that's great. That's fine. I love it that they Go for world records like you should be doing right now. And, uh, but the bottom line is I, I think it's the love and the camaraderie we have and, and, and uh, the feel we have for each other to be able to, to perform at the highest level. You know, it is, it is fun. Uh, we hung out together. We worked together at Albuquerque in 2019 at the National Senior Games. What are your memories of Albuquerque? What was your response to actually being around what was happening at these National Senior Games? I think the word that jumps out right away is awe. A-W-E. I was just in awe of all these amazing athletes, and that's what they were. I mean, some of them were a little faster than others. Uh, Some of them could jump a little higher than others, but I was just in awe of their stories. And that's what we do at the Olympics. You know, you talk about these wins and losses and gold medals, but it's the storytelling. It's the great stories behind these athletes. And I think what Growing Boulder did so well when we were in Albuquerque was the fact that we told the stories of these people, and it was inspiring. And for me, I was so inspired by so many different generations. And whether it was the 90 and up age group and down to the 50 and up or whatever the ages were, I was so in awe of what, what they were able to do and what they were capable of doing with uh, a lot of hardships that might have come their way. And it was really uh, impressive to me across all the sports. I, as I said, we played pickleball. And I thought, oh, this is going to be too easy. And first of all, it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. But the amazing athletes that were a lot older than us out there that <laughs> kicked our butt. That was the big thing. When we played a, a group, I think they were in the, in the 80 age group, and they, they were kicking our butt. They were really good. And I just was like, this is so cool, right? I, I know that's like a kind of a corny thing to say, but it was just, it was so cool across all the spectrums of all the sports. You surprised me at um, – what a high-level trash talker you are. <laughs> uh, I mean, you you were really, really good at that. Uh, I didn't see that coming, but I guess I should have. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. We were doing a little trash talking out there, and we both sucked, by the way. <laughs> we did, uh, but you sucked more. <laughs> 
Before we wrap it up, Rowdy, how's your shoulder? Because I know you've been unable to, to, to really work out. I'm, I'm assuming you're still kicking and doing something, but is your shoulder better? Are you going to have surgery? Yeah, we, we, we talked about that. And then again, injuries are a big part of life, especially as you get older. And I think as the uh, you said it, I mean, uh, if you could stay active, it's, it, it helps in preventing those injuries. Unfortunately for me, you know, I have a lot of miles on this shoulder, Mark. <laughs> Uh, we were sitting behind the blocks before the Olympics in 84 trying to figure out how many miles of swimming we had done to get to this point where my race lasted 49 seconds. I was 25 years old. And in eight years, and it's eight years because of the boycott, I had swum somewhere around 20,000 miles, which is the, basically the circumference of the globe at the equator. Well, I was 25 then. Now I'm 62. So you add another 35 years to it. And uh, I probably have doubled that. So now I've swam around the world twice. So the toll has been taken, and uh, I, the shoulder has bothered me, and I am going to have to get surgery. I, I'm willing to do that because I, I can't not swim. I, it's part of my being. It's, it's part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. So I'm okay with kicking, having kicked for the last year and a half, two years, because I still stay in the water, but I need to swim. So I need to fix it. So I know there's a, going to be a recovery process, but uh, I want to be swimming when I'm 80, 90 years old. I don't want to be kicking. So I'm going to bite the bullet. And you have your own Masters Swimming Meet, the yeah. Rowdy Gaines Masters Classic. You come every year. We have broken world records with you. Uh, Mark and I share a couple world records yeah. together in, in Masters Swimming on, on a relay where we, yep. where we swim on a relay together. Of course, there's only three teams in the whole world that swim that event. So that's why we're <laughs> world record holders. I joke, obviously. There are more than that. But um, it's fun to have actually share a world record. A world record's a world record, dude. Amen. And it's fun to share that with you. But, yeah, we, we love the meet. And I think Growing Boulder is, has been a wonderful partner of ours and has been able to tell the stories. That this, I, I have to bring it up real quick. I know we got to go, but. That the two stories, there's two of them you, you've seen. If you haven't seen them, go to Growing Boulder. You'll be able to find them about four 90-plus-year-olds swimming a relay. First, it was four men, and then it was a mixed relay, two men and two women, where they averaged, the average age was around 365, 370 years. And if you do your math, that's 90-plus years of age individually and above average and uh, it was, I still cry when I see those stories. And it's been viewed millions of times, by the way. That's really cool stories. But that, that came out of the Rowdy Gaines Classic. Rowdy Gaines and Mark Middleton, another fantastic conversation between you two guys. And it's so inspiring to hear you talk because it's not just a conversation about proper form or training or workouts like you get so many other places. You guys talk from the heart, and that's what makes things matter to all of us. Folks, you will definitely want to check out that entire interview, which you will find on Mark's podcast, Fountain of Youth. Up next, a poet who won a contest by a head and a shoulder. You'll hear her poem, which I think you'll like, next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com.
Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Are you ready to start growing bolder? I'm Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton, and one way to get started is to step out of your comfort zone and try something new. And that was the idea behind the creation of the Bold Poet Society and the Growing Boulder Online Poetry Contest. It was a good idea, Bill, wasn't it? You know, we wanted to celebrate the power and importance of creativity, and poetry does make us think. It reveals truth, and it helps us appreciate the world around us. We got some great entries, and we brought in some highly qualified judges to help us choose the best original poem. Now, the only thing we asked was that the poems include the words Florida, Blue, Growing, and Boulder. And in the spoken word category, first ever grand champion of the Bold Poet Society Slam is Kali Blake. Here's Kali now to read her touching, heartfelt piece called Seasons of Loss. Seasons of Loss, Summer. Your smile flooded my days with Florida sunshine. Your hugs filled me with an indescribable warmth. The mere sound of your voice was like sweet vanilla ice cream to my soul. And even on those days when temperatures soared, I felt refreshed and reassured by your presence, as cool as a crisp day in fall. But little did I know, soon you would fall out of my life like leaves fall from a tree. Now there's no you, only me. Fall, also known as autumn, where I'm expected to automatically go back to normal. Normal? What does that even mean? My life hasn't been the same since you left the scene. Got me feeling blue because my life is void of you. So you're gone and I'm withdrawn and I've put up walls allowing no one to enter. I'm broken, bitter, barren like winter. Faced with this cold, harsh reality, Lost in a storm of uncertainty, crushed by an avalanche of emotion, craving calm amidst the internal commotion. I'm as cold as ice, numb, wishing desperately that you would come, deliver me from the agony of you not being here with me. Your absence has been the ultimate devastation. I seek solace in the midst of isolation. Most days it's hard for me to get out of bed. Sometimes I wish he took me instead. I'm barely holding on to life's last string. My feet got no dance. My step got no spring. But as I blossom into the season of growing and healing, I feel raindrops of relief. Getting bolder and stronger every day as I go through my journey of loss and grief. Through my faith, friends, and family, the pain slowly loses its grip on me. And I know the hurt will never totally cease. But thoughts of you make my heart bloom with peace. 
Wow, that, that was powerful, uh, Kali, and a, and a perfect example of why I love spoken word, because it gives us an opportunity to see and hear the poet interpret it, and when one does it as well as you just did, to, to actually feel it. And, you know, that poem obviously is about loss. Uh, is, is there a personal loss that inspired it that you're willing to talk about? I mean, where did that come from? It's funny, it's, um, I would say losses. Um, loss of my father, uh, who died when I was young, but I have a handful of memories of him. And just loss of friendships, you know, sometimes through life, you know, you go your separate ways and, you know, relationships, they have an impact on us. And, and um, when that person leaves for whatever reason, it, it can really take a toll. So I would say that and just you know, the loss in life that we're all dealing with, you know, as a result of this pandemic. So it, it multiple sources, I would say. And, and you mentioned, Kali, about healing, a, a season of healing. I, I think a lot of us go through things that we need to confront, but we don't want to. Uh, is poetry a way for you to confront some feelings? Oh, and absolutely. Oh, ab- absolutely. I think that's where some of my um, most profound pieces have been birthed from is just pain that I've gone to, on, gone through in my life. And I, and I, I always say there's a saying that says, um, if you want to heal it, first you have to feel it. And sometimes going through feelings can be a very scary thing, um, but it's necessary, you know, and it ends up being good for you as well as good for others. You've not only uh, entertained us with, with a heartfelt poem today, I know you've inspired many people out there. You know, what, what do you say to, to people that might be interested, you know, in the art form, but, but they're afraid? You know, they don't think they can be a poet. Uh, is poetry for everybody? How do you get started? Um, I would say just, just start where you're at. You know, you know, you're not getting a grade on this, so to speak. Um, just start from the heart, you know, be raw, be real and be relevant and watch what happens. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just take 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 that leap and it, and it can be very healing to you. So I say go for it. I would recommend anyone to just go for it and you grow. You know, the 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 writing that I do today is nothing close to the writing that I did in the past. So it's it's a it's a process. Well, you blessed us with your poem. Thank you for entering. Congratulations uh, on, on being you. the grand prize winner. Uh, <laughs> we're going to share this poem as far and wide as we can. Uh, Kali, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Coming up next, my favorite segment in the entire show, On My Mind with Mark Middleton. Can't wait to find out what he's got. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to unique length. 
This is Growing Boulder, and it's time now for a segment called On My Mind with Mark Middleton. Mark is the founder and CEO of Growing Boulder, and he's got a really interesting way of looking at aging, maybe a way that you hadn't thought of yourself, where instead of dreading it, you start to think, wow, maybe this is a time of opportunity. So, Mark, this week, what's on your mind? Two things, and I don't know that either one of them will actually fit your intro, Bill, but thank you for that. Number one is on my mind is everybody listening should subscribe to the Growing Boulder Insider. It's our weekly e-newsletter. If you don't like it, just unsubscribe, but I guarantee you folks, you will like it. But see, I would argue that that is exactly what will help people see aging in a totally different light. The Insider is full of interesting articles and tidbits and and interviews and and, and pieces with people from all over the world that are seeing aging in a totally different way than our parents and our grandparents did, Mark. And you do a fantastic job week after week of encapsulating it in this weekly mailer. Plus, people get to know what's going on behind the scenes at Growing Boulder and what's ahead so they don't miss a thing. Yeah, just go to growingboulder.com. Um, slash insider. All right, finally, very quickly, the other thing, you know, we talk about ageism a lot on this show, Bill. You know, the fact that doctors prescribe medication ahead of lifestyle modification, that physical therapists underdose on therapy because they think older adults can't handle it. This is something that is stunning to me. And that's the fact that we have more than 65,000 pediatricians, but only 7,500 geriatricians. Less than 1% of all U.S. physicians are certified in geriatrics. And over the next 20 years, we're going to need an estimated 36,000 geriatricians, and there's only 7,500 of them. And here's the deal. Only eight of the country's 145 academic medical centers have geriatrics departments, and 97% of U.S. medical students do not take a single course in geriatrics. This is ageism. Doctors don't want to take care of older people because they think it's not cool when it's the most needed part of our medical system today. And it's something you say all the time, Mark. Who is your best health care advocate, folks? It is you. Get out there and start growing bolder. We'll see you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fires.